2: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. This week we're looking at gambling, big data and Indonesian nukes. But first up, here's the news. Forever Fertiliser. Imagine if farmers could just add a fertiliser once and never had to fertilize again. Enfix from the University of Nottingham will deliver just such a result. A small number of plants such as peas and lentils have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria. that are able to take nitrogen out of the air and fix it so the plants can use it. Most other plants, particularly crops, get their nitrogen fix from the soil they grow in and it can get used up. This means farmers have to add fertilizer or the soil gets depleted. Fertiliser is made in bulk with an electrochemical process that takes nitrogen from the air using lots of electrical power. Professor Edward Cocking, director of the University of Nottingham's Centre for Crop Nitrogen Fixation, has discovered a naturally occurring bacteria that forms a mutually beneficial relationship with sugarcane. Sugarcane that is infected with this bacteria never needs fertiliser. Amazingly, the team have found that unlike the bacteria in peas, which needs special structures grown by the plant, the sugarcane bacteria can infect all types of crops they've tried so far. This could be a huge benefit to developing countries where the cost of fertiliser drives up the price of food. The university's NFix product infects the seeds with the bacteria so that as it grows, every cell in the plant can use nitrogen from the air to self-fertilise. The plant doesn't get hurt and it doesn't harm the food. Not only will this lower the cost of producing food, but it will reduce the amount of nitrogen pollution that runs off farms into water to poison the environment. Nitrogen runoff harms the Great Barrier Reef, for example, and ammonia gas damages the atmosphere. Having all crops fertilise themselves by fixing nitrogen from the air with symbiotic bacteria in the same way as peas, beans, lentils and sugarcane will also mean less coal is burned to power the fertiliser industry. The university expects NFix to be on the market in two to three years. Soils depleted of other minerals, like phosphates, will still need to be fertilised. We received an email question with the subject line, Nuclear for Australia? What are you going to cool that with? From Edwin Allen Bish II, who wrote, Hello, long-time listener, first-time email. Another show I listen to is Le Show, produced by Harry Shearer, and one of the segments on his show is about nuclear power. In the last couple of shows, he's highlighted a number of plants in the U.S., that have had to shut down or curtail production due to the lack of water from the environment at a cool enough temperature. These plants are on or near the east coast of the US where the climate is rather moderate. In Australia, where you've had to invent new colors for your weather maps to depict the heat, where are you gonna get water cool enough to cool these proposed plants? Thanks for the great show and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Edwin. Most proposals are to put the nuclear power plants on the east coast of Australia, where they can use seawater to cool them. In other words, right on the beaches. In the desert, where it would be safer from disaster, it definitely gets too hot, as you saw with the new colour scheme last summer. So we'd be putting the nuclear power plants in the best places to live, where there's lots of water and the temperatures aren't too high. As the Fukushima disaster shows, and the problems with the US nuclear power plants, cooling is a real issue. Water is also a big issue for Australia, we can't afford to pump drinkable water for cooling, and we can't afford to poison the Pacific like the Japanese are doing. The parts of Australia that get so hot in summer that they needed a new colour scheme are in the desert, far away from cities, so they're not really suitable for power stations. However, they are exactly the kind of places that have been suggested as dumps for hot radioactive waste of the kind that caught fire in Fukushima when the water pumps failed because the power was knocked out by the tsunami. Sure, there's no tsunamis in the inland desert, but the temperatures make keeping radioactive waste cooled with pumped water an expensive proposition. Australia doesn't really need to take the risks of a nuclear disaster, and it seems a poor bargain to risk nuclear waste poisoning us for 240,000 years to only get 100 years of electricity, which is how long the OECD estimates before the uranium runs out. Australia could also suffer from nuclear disasters from our nearest neighbours. Indonesia has plans for nuclear power. Indonesia is right next door to Australia, on the Pacific Rim, with earthquakes and tsunamis. A study from the Australian National University shows that Brisbane, Darwin and Perth would be in the fallout clouds path if Indonesia has a nuclear disaster. A video of the modelled path will be embedded on diffusionradio.com. Could Indonesia gain the capability to make nuclear weapons from the plutonium left over from the power plant waste? Well, technically they could, but Indonesia was one of the 10 Asian nations that signed the 1995 Southeast Asian Nuclear Weapon-Free Zone Treaty. So what's the track record of Indonesia's power companies? In 2006, PT Lepindo Bratas were drilling for coal seam gas and suffered a catastrophic blowout that triggered a mud volcano. Bubbling mud has been pouring out of the mud volcano at a rate of over 100,000 cubic metres every day slowing finally to 10,000 cubic metres of mud per day this year. The Sadorja Mud Volcano is expected to keep spewing gas and mud for the next 30 years. They contained the flooding from the mud flow by levees in 2008, a full two years after it started. Gassy mud floodings regularly disrupt local highways and villages, and further breakouts of mud are still possible despite the levees. The methane is pouring straight into the atmosphere, contributing to global warming. The other nuclear power plant near Australia is in the Philippines. The Bataan nuclear power plant was completed but never fueled. It's located at a government reservation at Napot Point in Morong, Bataan, which is 100 kilometres outside of the capital of Manila. Military dictator President Marcos started the construction for the nuclear power plant in 1976 after there'd been an embargo of oil. Then, after the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in the USA in 1979, construction was stopped, and over 4,000 safety defects were discovered in the plant. There were also concerns raised about the fact that it was built on a major earthquake fault line, and not far away from Mount Pinatubo, a volcano that was then dormant. By 1984, the cost of construction was $2.3 billion US dollars. Marcos was overthrown in 1986, just days before the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. The newly elected President Aquino decided not to operate the nuclear power plant, which was a popular decision with the locals. It continued to be the Philippine government's biggest source of debt, and incurred an ongoing $96 million per year to keep it maintained in case the government changed its mind about opening it again. A recent study estimated it would cost over a billion dollars to make it run So in 2011, the government turned it into a tourist attraction. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Australia has always had a big gambling culture, and most people have at least a little bit of a flutter. There are poker machines in most pubs and clubs, and Sydney has recently approved the building of a second casino. I spoke to Alex Blazinski, professor of clinical psychology and director of the Sydney University Gambling Treatment Clinic. I began by asking him, what's the difference between just a little bit of gambling that might be fun and pathological gambling?
1: The substantive difference is that the recreational gambler is able to spend... uh, sufficient time and money that they can actually afford. Um, The problem gambler is the person who gambles to excess. That is, that they spend more than their discretionary, disposable income or spend more leisure time engaged in that activity. And as a result, there's an opportunity cost. And that generally leads to uh, significant harms uh, over a longer period of time.
2: So recreational gambling for most people isn't a bad thing?
1: No, recreational gambling is uh, regarded as a leisure activity, Um, it provides uh, some benefits, it's a social activity, Um, it provides people with the uh, hope of winning, for example, lottery tickets. They can dream about the uh, losses. Uh, They hope to win but expect to lose. Uh, With uh, the elderly there is some evidence that um, gambling does in fact stimulate uh, um, their mood states, their interest, and is a positive thing, uh, in particular to get the lonely people out of their uh, homes and into more of a social environment. Um, with youth, um, it does provide some degree of social interactions and uh, peer group interactions as well.
2: And isn't part of the problem that most humans are really, really bad at calculating the odds?
1: I think not only are they bad at calculating the odds, they don't understand or appreciate the odds or actually dispose them. And there's some studies conducted by uh, Robert Ladis at Laval University which compared people who were knowledgeable in uh, statistics versus another group of individuals who were supposedly naive in statistics and uh, probabilities. They applied a thinking-allow technique where the person was uh, verbalising their thought processes as they were gambling and found that both the those who are familiar with statistics and those who are naive both exhibited very high levels of erroneous beliefs and irrational uh, uh, concepts about gambling. So you're not totally protected just because you understand statistics? Uh, No, it comes down to uh, in part the notion that you could be lucky, you could win, that you have uh, particular skills, that you have uh, personal attributes of luck, Um, people have biased uh, recall, Uh, they tend to remember wins and uh, dismiss losses. Um, Quite often with sports betting, they believe that they have special skills in terms of determining uh, uh, which team has the better likelihood of winning. And if that team loses, they then discount those losses by the referee or by somebody being ill or some external factor. If that team wins, it reinforces the idea that they're skillful uh, punters.
2: So people like to think that they've got a special ability that other people don't have.
1: This is one of the uh, issues with gambling is that people do in fact develop an illusion of control. (laughs) That is that they believe they have a personal skill which is above average and which enables them to overestimate their chance of winning.
2: And is there a neurological component to all of this?
1: This is still in debate, but there is some evidence suggesting that uh, there are genetically-based vulnerabilities uh, related to neurotransmitter activities, in particular where dopamine and serotonin. These neurotransmitters are involved in anticipatory reward and also influence uh, judgments. So it's much much like the... uh, a drug addict or the alcoholic, that uh, these neurochemical changes um, are linked to um, reward sensitivities such that people become more excited by uh, arousing events and are less influenced by negative uh, consequences or punishment.
2: The situation with poker machines, in particular, because that seems to be really prevalent in Australia that lots of pubs and clubs have poker machines, and most people well, there's no indication of what the odds even are when you're playing one of those machines. And it seems like you've got an instant, you've got all these flashing lights and music and animations to sort of reward you. Is that playing on that dopamine chemistry?
1: Uh, that, that's correct. It does influence uh, arousal levels. The uh, poker machines um, have a player uh, return percentage, or payback percentage, of roughly uh, 91%. It, uh, uh, from memory, it's 85% is the minimum uh, Uh, technical specification uh, in New South Wales, but on average they return 91% of the play. Most people misunderstand that and think that they have either a 91% chance of winning or that 91% of the money can be returned back to them in winnings, etc. But in reality, what it means is that uh, uh, for each press of the button, they're paying 9% of their uh, stake. So over time, they're guaranteed to lose. The other important element is the volatility of the machine. The payback percentage um, is a theoretical return rate of 91 percent and that can be achieved by multiple frequent small returns uh, or alternatively less frequent but larger returns. And again we don't understand whether uh, someone who continues to play um, frequently and gets rewarded frequently will continue to play. The other er- 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 erroneous beliefs is that um, if a machine is having a high frequency of low payouts, it's due to come in for a big jackpot or a big win. Alternatively, if the machine hasn't paid out for a while, it's due to pay out. <laughs> and so as a consequence, it drives the person to continue gambling, uh, in particular with the belief that the next pay, next press of the button will result in a jackpot win. and this leads then to uh, the concept of cognitive regret that is if the person uh, fails to press the next button, decides to stop and the next person comes along and hits the button and wins the jackpot that emotional pain of missing out is much greater often than the uh, arousal associated with winning
2: Because when I've watched people play poker machines, it seems that they they put their money in and they play and they put their money in and they play and they lose. And then if they do win, they put the money back in the cup and they just keep on playing until it's all gone.
1: That's correct. So what happens is that uh, the majority of people uh, have a uh, pre-committed amount of money that they intend to uh, spend. If they win, they then uh, say, this machine is hot, it's paying out, I'll continue uh, playing. So let's say, assume that they start with $50 and win another $100. Um, they'll continue playing. And they now consider themselves to be $100 ahead. Therefore, they're playing with the uh, venue's money rather than their own. The machine is hot, so they better take advantage. So they continue playing. However, they start to lose money. And once they get down to, say, $50, the thought processes switch to, say, well, I did win a hundred dollars, now I'll stop when I get back to a hundred dollars. And then when they're down to about twenty-five dollars they'll say well I'll continue gambling until I hit fifty dollars. Once they uh, reduce, uh, once they lose and then uh, they have say fifty dollars, the initial stake the thought processes are well I can start again now because I'm back to break even point and they will continue gambling. When they continue losing it down to, say, $40, then again they come back and say, well, I'll start playing and stop when I hit $50. And then by the time they're down to $10, they say, well, why bother? I might as well blow the lot. And so you can see that it's a dynamic thought processes that occur at each phase of the uh, uh, gambling session, which will determine whether they continue or not
2: so what are the warning signs that you're going from having a bit of fun to pathological gambling
1: that you're at risk i think the early warning signs are essentially uh, feeling frustrated and feeling uh, uh, upset at having lost the money at the end of uh, a particular session of game Um, the next warning level is that you intend to return to further gambling in order to chase the losses or try to win the money back again um, and then the ultimate uh, level is that gambling has got you uh, into debt and the false belief is that gambling is going to get you out of debt, so you persist. When you exceed the amount of money that you can pay back reasonably, whether that's 10000 20000 200000 the more debt you are, uh, the more there is emotional pressure for you to uh, continue playing because the amount of money you have is not going to uh, pay back the loan.
2: So if you feel
1: that you are tipping into a dangerous state, what can be done? The important element basically is firstly to acknowledge that uh, gambling is structured in such a way that the venue is going to win and they're guaranteed to win in the long term. Um, The next step then is to uh, uh, seek counselling or help. There's help available. The Sydney University Gambling Treatment Clinic um, provides cognitive therapy uh, to help people understand the myths associated with gambling and some of their uh, erroneous beliefs. There are other gamblers' help counselling services available. There's a telephone counselling line and there are other private practitioners available to provide assistance. I think the important element basically is that you need to uh, identify that you may have a problem gambling in the early stages and uh, take the courageous step of acting early on in the piece rather than when there is serious uh, financial or relationship problems uh, emerging. Well I I think the the important element basically is that uh, um, when we look at the figures Roughly 1% of the general population, adult population, meet criteria for pathological gambling. However, if you take uh, uh, populations of gamblers, people in particular with electronic gaming machines in hotels and clubs, the proportion is much higher, so 15 to 20%. So I think that if you're an electronic gaming machine player, you need to look very carefully uh, in terms of whether you can or are gambling in affordable limits and if not then take early steps to uh, reduce the amount of uh, money that you're gambling or start to realize that gambling is a source of uh, entertainment, it's a recreational device on which you are spending money it is not a source of income.
2: And if people want to find out more
1: about your work
2: here, where should they look online?
1: Uh, they can look online at the uh, University of Sydney Psychology, School of Psychology website under the Gambling Treatment Clinic, uh, or alternatively call the clinic on 1-800-GTC-GTC. GTC. Professor Blazinski, thank you very much. My pleasure. That
2: was Professor Alex Blazinski from the University of Sydney's School of Psychology, Director of the Sydney University Gambling Treatment Clinic. You can call the clinic in Australia on 1800 gtc gtc and find them online through the University of Sydney's School of Psychology page. You'll find the link on www.diffusionradio.com. And now a talk from the UTS Science Faculty 3-Minute Thesis Competition. Students have 3 minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide. Here's Miriam Manictus, who I interviewed back in 2010, with Fast Data Analysis.
0: Within the past decade, we've been moving into an age where statistics, analytics, algorithms and quantification have taken the spotlight. We've been pushed into a new frontier. The astronomy and genomic sciences, which first experienced this explosion in the 2000s, coined the term big data. These days we're dealing with such large volumes of data that it may not fit into standard computer memory. Therefore, we'll need to be processing it immediately on arrival and then discarding of it. Internet companies have been particularly swamped. Google processes more than 24 petabytes per day, a volume that is thousands of times greater than all of the printed material in the US Library of Congress, if we can imagine. Facebook, a company that didn't exist a decade ago, gets more than 10 million photos uploaded every hour. A like button is clicked nearly three billion times per day. This creates a digital trail in order for Facebook to learn about our user preferences. One big question, however, remains. How do we get the signal from the noise? The answer? Fast data analysis. The objective to analyzing data is to end up with an easy to understand expression of what is going on behind the scenes of this complex, messy information. Let's consider an example for a moment. Suppose we had data on proteins produced by genes in the body. When tying proteome sequencing with genome sequencing, this adds billions of data points within millions of patients. And that's a pretty large data set. Here we'd be looking for something like a better biomarker. For instance, anything in the patient's urine, blood, or saliva that is indicative of a certain disease. But since this data set is way too large, traditional methods such as regression tend to break down, or they're just too time-consuming. This is where my thesis comes into play. I am currently working on building and implementing fast algorithms that approximate very complex mathematical questions in order to achieve analysis in the quickest time possible. Thank you. How, How fast? How fast, yeah. <laughs> um, so some of my methods, one of my methods in particular, has been 78 times faster than traditional methods. So in the world of big data, this is quite
2: huge. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thank you. That was Marianne Manictus talking big data in her three-minute thesis at the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the 3-Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. Now these points of data make a beautiful line, and we're out of data, we're releasing on time, so I'm glad I got burned, think of all the things we learned, for the people who still alive. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Ask me a question and like our Facebook page. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.